it's possible that it could happen, but we have to assume that things get back to normal in China uh, very soon. But it doesn't look like that right now because the shock Shanghai have continued. This is going to have a major impact on the logistics and the uh, uh, finance and a lot of the uh, China's economy because Shanghai is a very important city. There's going to be some uh, sort of handing over effect of these lockdowns because people's incomes are affected and many jobs are gone, especially in the service sector. So that inevitably will lead to dampening of uh, consumption demand in the uh, following months. You know, I, I still don't see uh, consumption as a major driver for the rest of the year. And hopefully, I think, you know, on, on, on investment and export side, things still can pick up. The export sector, I think, still has a lot of potential. You know, even though we're facing a different world right now, but uh, Chinese exports are still very competitive. And I don't see a strong substitute for the current model uh, anytime soon. These two areas are still going to be uh, the workhorses for the GDP growth for the rest of the year. China is part of the BRICS. Out of these five countries, three are completely stuck in the middle-income trap. Brazil, Russia, and South Africa. Russia not only is doing that, but is doing much worse. And that's where I separate potential from realization. The Brazilian economy has a lot of potential that has not been realized in 30 years. China has the potential to grow 5% a year for the next 30 years. There is no barrier for that in terms of uh, labor, capital, and natural resources. The barriers are institutional in nature, the quality of the government, the potential crisis, and so on and so forth. So no, I, I don't revise my statements. I like to qualify it by saying that things like not only COVID, but deglobalization, things like uh, the quality of the institutions in China, this is what is going to determine if China can grow 5% per year for the next 30 years or not. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to the Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. Joining our discussion on the Chinese economy are Dr. Zhang Gan. Professor of Economics, University of International Business and Economics, Rodrigo Zaidan, Associate Professor of Practice of Business and Finance, New York University, Shanghai, and author and commentator Thomas Paukin II. Warm welcome to you all. So China's economy grew by 4.8% in the first quarter compared to the same period last year. That's lower than the annual target of 5.5% set by the central government, but higher than predictions made by a slew of international institutes, which um, usually ranged from 42 to 4.4% in general. So let's start with the figure. I want to ask... Um, Tom, first, do you believe the number is accurate? Well, I mean, it's possible that it could happen, but we have to assume that things get back to normal in China uh, very soon. But it doesn't look like that right now because the lockdowns in Shanghai have continued. This is going to have a major impact on the logistics and the uh, finance and a lot of the uh, China's economy because Shanghai is a very important city. 
Now, so I, I'm talking about the figure of the, of the first three quarters, the 4.8% growth. This number, do you think it's accurate? No. Sometimes uh, people are, are saying that China is probably hiding growth to, to some extent or exaggerating or overestimated yeah, the, the growth rate. Yeah, it sounds. It definitely sounds overestimated to me. Maybe they're they're calculating the the trade figures from before the lockdown in Shanghai, but it just doesn't sound too accurate on my side. You know, I mean, it's not like there's a depression here. It's not like there's a major economic downturn. No, it's, it's not just about the growth in Shanghai. It's about the growth in in the entire country. Well, Shanghai has a major impact on what's going on with the Chinese economy. So when they are under lockdown, it does impact on what happens to the rest of the, the economy nationwide. Can I chime in? Sure. sure. The GDP, GDP growth rates, they are what economists call uh, leading, uh, lagging indicators, mm. right? They reflect what happens in the period that they are calculated. Usually we really care about GDP growth because in normal times, the, the, whatever is the, the trend of the GDP growth should continue moving forward. Now, we are not in normal times. First of all, GDP growth is always an estimate, right? Nobody actually observes GDP growth. It's an estimate of the market value of the transactions being made in a national economy. In this case, the economy of China. Now, 4.8% is actually a sensible number, uh, given the fact that the Chinese economy has underperformed in 2020. Of course, it was the, the first year of the pandemic. Mm. Um, growth in 2021 was robust. Now, what has been created in the last few years is that economists found ways to calibrate um, estimates of GDP growth from some countries by using indirect data such as the the amount of light that cities give out because this this amount of light the strength of the lights and the strength of economic activity can be picked up even by, by satellite there are some very important academic studies that show that china sometimes actually the, the academic study shows that china sometimes understate and somebody overstates GDP growth. In other words, what Chinese authorities end up doing is actually smoothing out the GDP growth data to actually not having it vary so much because the variation of GDP <coughs> growth data may send some mixed signals to society. Mm. However, in these current conditions, the 4.8% GDP growth it doesn't actually really matter if it is overstated or understated because it's the trend is not that informative. Be, the recent lockdowns and the recent global chain disruptions worldwide, they will change GDP growth rates to the extent that if the number is a little bit overstated or understated, it will matter for the Chinese economy moving forward. Mm. Well, so Rock, usually GDP growth data I, is really important, but not right now. Mm. Let me add my perspective. And I think sure. uh, when we first see this number, 
I, my guess is that everybody's attempted to say that this is sort of overestimated. But I think what I did uh, a little bit different is that I went back to check when the Shanghai lockdown started. Um, it actually started towards the very end of the end of the uh, first quarter. That's in March. So, uh, so I think uh, you know probably we are overwhelmed by the news coming from Shanghai. Mm. Um, and and if you you know really look at the the time before the Shanghai lockdown, which is the bulk of the the first quarter. Actually, uh, you know, there's a lot of good investment news coming mm-hmm. from um, southwestern China, western China. So, so my guess is that uh, you know we still need to give the Chinese government the benefit of the doubt. Um, and, and I think uh, the impact of Shanghai will sooner or later be reflected. I mean, in the second quarter. Mm. Um, so, uh, so I totally agree that you know the first quarter number it, it's an up, it's down. It really doesn't matter. I think what's important is uh, is is the trend of where the economy is going. And I'm on that. I I I, I totally Totally, uh, I'm not in the sort of a rosy camp uh, at this point. I think mm. uh, we're facing mountain of challenges. Um, you know, previous guests talked about the pandemic, the, the disruption to the global value chain due to the war. All these are very important factors. I think um, you know, moving forward, uh, I'm actually um, not very optimistic uh, with respect to the overall year-end goal that is 5.5%. Um, I think every country in this world right now is going to be impacted. Uh, it's not going to be a, a good picture for, for the rest of the year in mm. 2022. Mm, I understand uh, your take. The reason why I raise this question is that, uh, you know, I heard uh, Kishore Mahbubani, you know, the, the renowned Singaporean scholar, once say, it's wise to overestimate rather than underestimate China's growth. Um, every time there are some figures coming out from the, you know, Statistics Bureau, the authorities, there will always be some um, questions there over whether those numbers were accurate, then to the growth itself, in general, what's your evaluation of the growth rate? Is it worrying, merely acceptable, or, or decent enough, um, given the annual target growth rate of uh, five and a half percent, um, John? Yeah, well, uh, in the overall scheme of things, uh, first quarter, in, in the context we've been talking about, uh, um, in, in the context of trying to achieve 5.5% growth over the over for, for the whole year, I think it's a very decent growth. Actually, I think mm-hmm. it's uh, it's better than my expectation. Um, uh, but but honestly, as I said, I'm I'm, I'm kind of a skeptical that the, the 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 year end will be reached. You know, given the situation in Shanghai and other parts of uh, China, and the impact of that got to be reflected in you know GDP growth. Uh, I guess in the second quarter at least. Um, so uh, and then we don't even know when it's going to end, right? So um, so I'm worried. I mean, this this is very worrying news actually. Even though you know it's 5.8, you know 5.2 of of I mean 4.8 or 4.2 or 5.4 even. You know, it doesn't matter. I think mm. uh, you know what's uh, what's really important. It's uh, is the is the forecast moving forward, and I don't see the, the forecast moving forward is going to be uh, you know too good in my view. Mm-mm. Rod, what's your take? How good or how bad is this uh, growth? Again, I, I agree. Let me try to put these things into perspective. Sure. Right? Uh, China in the past has grown 14% a year, 10% a year, 8% a year. The question is, what is the ideal growth rate for a country at the current stage of development? Now, 
China will not grow 10% a year again, mm. right? China was going through rapid industrialization. As countries move from lower middle income to middle income, from middle income to upper middle income, from upper middle income to uh, wealth, rich status, growth rates naturally decline. After all, the base is much bigger, right? When you are already rich, 3% growth rate is actually quite good. Mm. And that's where China is, go is going. Um, 5% in a country that is already upper middle income China today is actually a, an ambitious growth rate. China will not be able to sustain 5% growth rate for much longer. It is achievable. And if China is to become a rich economy, it will grow 5% for maybe the next 10 years. But growth rates will naturally decline, right? Because again, as the, if the country is already rich, it cannot grow 5% a year. That, that doesn't happen sustainably. Uh, in that sense, a growth target of 5 or 5.5% is ambitious, but achievable in, under the conditions of the Chinese economy today, given the fact that there are too many people to move from um, rural areas to cities, there's a, still a little bit of industrialization to be done. It's not going to happen this year, though. The lockdowns and the current conditions of the global economy will most likely make China not be able to achieve the 5.5 target this year, but it's not a big deal. In the same way that it was not a big deal, not achieving the 6%, 5.5% growth in 2020 during the first year of the pandemic. Mm. Those external shocks and internal shocks are very major, and they will lower the potential of the economy in the very short run. You're saying um, it's not a big deal because... Um... I think you're quite confident in, in the country's development in the future. But when it comes to the government, when it sets some targets, the government, I'm talking about the Chinese government, it tends to you know, accomplish what it uh, set in the first place. Or in other words, it cares very much about uh, its promise made to you know, the general public. Yes, it's not a big deal for this moment, but people are still hoping that that target can be reached, right? So if that's a, a mission to be accomplished, um, we need to analyze what's to our advantage, what's to our disadvantage, so that we can make this happen in due time. You're saying it's very likely that China can, can hardly reach the goal of 5.5% of growth. But some other experts are arguing that it's still attainable. It's just um, more efforts need to be made. John? Yeah, so we have uh, a little bit of a, a half a year left. I think um, the first priority is to try to get the COVID thing behind us. Um, you know, I think the, you know, there's some controversy about whether the the dynamic zero COVID policy, you know, is, is effective or not. There's some comparison 
between Shanghai and Hong Kong, for example. Um, I mean, all these things are, are debatable in my view. But mm. you know, at the end of the day, you know, let's look at the results. Um, I think what's really important is trying to um, you know. Uh, get get it behind us. Um, if the Chinese government is going to stick with this policy, it has to stick to with this policy. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, uh, these lockdowns would end very soon. Um, that's a you know that's a absolute necessity to to ever trying to uh, to ever try to achieve that goal of 5.5 percent. Well, let me also point out that uh, the government's goal is about 5.5 percent. Actually, mm. I mean that's the original language in the, in the in the official government document. So I think even if we achieve something you know around 5 percent, a little bit over 5 percent, it's it's already a a, a lofty achievement. Uh, aside from the the uh, uh, dealing with the COVID, I think another thing is to stick with the original plan of using the fiscal policy to uh, increase infrastructure investment in the soft infrastructure side of things. Um, I think the uh, what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks is that uh, you know these investments are still very much on track. Um, you know, you were seeing news about these investments in, as I said, in southwest China, in western part of China. Um, and I hope that uh, these investments would uh, would be reflected in in future GDP numbers. So uh, at this point, I think uh, you know, ask me the question. Look at the different aspects of the GDP composition. You know what what areas that are not performing that needs to step step up. I think at this point, um, I'm still very optimistic about the investment side of things, the the export side of things, uh, mm. but consumption is still a big problem. I mean, the um, the, the the whole is with respect to um, uh, consumption according to original plan, but um, it, it's not happening at this point. And uh, um, and I think there's going to be some uh, sort of handing over effect of these lockdowns because people's incomes are affected um, and many jobs are gone, especially in the service sector. So that inevitably will lead to uh, dampening of uh, consumption demand. Uh, in the uh, following months. So, um, you know, I I still don't see uh, consumption as a major driver uh, for the rest of the year. Um, And hopefully, I think, you know, on, on, on investment and export side, things still can go uh, pick up. Uh, um, the the export sector, I think, still has a lot of potential. Uh, you know, even though we're facing a kind of a different world right now, but uh, Chinese exports are still very competitive, and I don't see a um, strong substitute for the current model uh, anytime soon. So, so these two areas are still going to be uh, the workhorses for the GDP growth for the rest of the year. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. I totally agree. Um, As John said, uh, if that's uh, the government policy, if you have to deal with it, you have to deal with it and you have to take it. So under these circumstances, be it um, occasional lockdowns or temporary lockdowns or some... um, static, closed off uh, management, whatever you call it, uh, there is always things that people can do. Maybe it's not activities we do every day, but it's, you know, probably we can move those business activities online, like, you know, online fitness um, training. That's becoming quite popular, especially during the closed off management period in Shanghai. So, Professor Zaidan, what's your, you know, suggestions there? 
Um, first of all, China China is, is going through a great rebalancing. Of course, manufacturing is still very important. Exports is very important. Mm. Um, and when we look at closed loop management, they help support economic activity in the middle of a series of lockdowns. My main concern, however, is um, regarding the service sector. Investment is now only 35 to 40% of GDP. Like most countries, what has been going on is that uh, Chinese growth in services is much higher than growth in manufacturing. This is the great rebalancing, and that's what happens when countries um, go through the later stage of industrialization. And this is the impact of the lockdown that I have not been seeing a big discussion on in Chinese and international media, which is how the government will support the service sector. I'm much less concerned about the manufacturing sector. Mm -hmm. They make the big news and they make the big news because these, these are the sectors that uh, will affect inflation in the US or Europe. But for Chinese GDP growth and for Chinese long-term GDP growth, it is the support of the service sector that matters the most. And what I've been seeing in Shanghai is that the measures by authorities don't look to, to be enough, don't look to be sufficient. Um, there is some tax relief, uh, but a lot of companies are simply closed because of the lockdowns. Mm. Their revenue has gone down tremendously, sometimes to zero, and many of them are not going to survive. The ones that could barely survive the first wave of lockdowns in 2020 are in danger of going bankrupt right now. So what is it that is going to be done? That, to me, is the most important question that uh, um, government authorities face today. When you talk about uh, service, did you mainly refer to, you know, businesses like a catering business or logistics or like financial services? Um, I'm talking about, first of all, the whole hospitality industry, mm -hmm. um, restaurants, they, they employ a lot of people, right? Restaurants, bars, and stuff like that, that's for sure. We're talking about education services. Mm -hmm. We have a whole industry that is that move online. Um, the quality is not the same. The quantity is not the same. Um, with financial services as well, um, we are not seeing um, banks are closed. Right. People have to do everything online, which works for a while. But in terms of even we're even we're talking about imagine a lot of people in services that providing, let's say, cleaning services for the buildings. These people might not be getting paid because a lot of this is outsourced to these companies that now have almost no demand. So what is going on in the service sector? This is the, for me, is the main important question because it also points to income inequality. Because these are the people, these are the sectors that are more labor intensive and they're not necessarily the ones where people earn the most money. But even if it's not under lockdown, things have already changed the quality in, like what you said just now, in education and other or in other uh, businesses. 
could also have been changed. Even in, I understand in Western countries where they said they've, they've gone back to, you know, the normal lives. Actually, things are not the same as what they had uh, prior to the pandemic. So there is some uh, sacrifice or, or, if you will, discounts that we have to take under these circumstances. But what we need to do is obviously trying to find the silver lining. So, Tom, do you have any suggestions? One thing like, for example, in the U.S., and I've also made this prediction here uh, in China, but it hasn't gone as, as it was in America, is I'm going to see a, a bigger movement towards the rural areas, a bigger movement towards outside the cities. I think people have realized with this pandemic that uh, they were living in very crowded areas, that these places that have been in lockdown, it was very hard. But uh, you may have a lot of people from the cities uh, choose if they can work at home, then they'd rather work in an area where it's not a crowded city. It's not so hectic. And that's exactly what happened in America. I made that prediction there, but I thought maybe it would happen here in China, but it did not. I think uh, the Chinese, maybe perhaps they've just uh, love cities much more than Americans do. But I still, you know, I'm going to stick with that uh, prediction on that business type trend that I think if these lockdowns continue and if we continue on with this type of uh, uh, hard policy and that eventually cities will have some ma major struggles, you're going to see more people move to rural areas or smaller towns. And by moving to the rural areas and smaller towns, there's going to be much bigger opportunities in those areas. So that is how people are adapting. That's how they, what they did in America. When they, when they discover they can move and, and work at home, they decided that their home is nicer in a more rural area. So in this same regards, I think the Chinese, they haven't made that discovery yet, but I think they're going to start to realize that, that, that smaller towns may have its own charms because the cost of living are cheaper there. And if they can work from home, that they can work for these major companies that are based in the major cities, but they can still uh, work in a more, uh, you know, an, an area where they have more room and they have, you know, more fresh air and less traffic to deal with on a daily basis. I'm not quite sure about that. John, what would you say? Well, um, uh, no, I, I've been living in the United States for quite a few years, mm -hmm. almost two decades before I moved back to China. Uh, so, so let me offer my little perspective. I think, you know, what uh, you're talking about is, the, you know, starting from the 1970s, there was this uh, movement away from the major cities into the suburbs. Um, and then you create all these, you know, nice suburban communities. And these are very different type of housing. These are single family houses, you know, with a nice backyard, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but honestly, in China, I don't see that happening because uh, just because of the sheer amount of land that needs to be support that kind of a lifestyle. Uh, you know, we have uh, 1.4 billion people, you know, almost this, over 60% uh, people living in the cities, these are the urban population, and if, if just a fraction of this suburban, uh, this urban population move to the to the countryside, to the sub suburbs, and you know live a lifestyle like this, um, it, it requires a huge amount of land, uh, and land is precious in China, um, and I think there's already a, a struggle between the the land for agriculture versus the land for industrial and commercial use, mm. uh, and the Chinese government has a strict control over. Over, over that kind of a land conversion. Uh, so, so uh, and actually the, the 
you know, the government also has a policy sort of discourage the development of uh, single family housing because it's viewed as a, you know, kind of a wasteful, I guess. Um, so, uh, so even though it's a nice idea, it creates jobs and creates economic activities and, and it makes people happy, it would be better housing. Uh, but practically, I, I don't see that happening, um, at least on a large scale. Single-family houses in the suburbs in China are very expensive, and uh, the government won't allow this kind of a development to a large uh, scale. So um, even though it's a nice idea uh, in theory, but in practice, it's going to run into all kinds of problems. So uh, I don't see this as a major point of growth uh, as we move forward. And Rod, you said uh, there is great need for um, the government to provide some um, supportive policy for the business. What kind of policy, or which sectors do you think are most in need of policy support right now? So, um, this is one lesson that we learned uh, globally from the first round of lockdowns in 2020. Right. Um, at first, um, the governments did universal policies, right? Because we nobody knew what would be the effect of lockdowns on economic activity and income inequality. So things like universal, the universal income transfers in which everybody would get uh, money from the government. This was the first, um, um, I would say, the first generation of um, of government support during lockdowns. We learned that that is not necessarily the case. We we learned that lockdowns have very asymmetric effects on economic activity. Some people would actually make more money, of course. People who can transition to work from home will not have their income impacted much, if at all. And many industries will pick up the blunt of the lockdowns. So governments should support the most affected industries, but more importantly, governments should support the most vulnerable and poorer citizens, the ones that have their income affected the most. So what because should government do, like can, distributing like uh, uh, coupons or food coupons, things like that? No, no, no food coupons at all. The government should give money directly to the poorest citizens, uh. to the ones that the government, the, the ones that are affected the most. No food coupons, this, this, no, nothing is better than giving money to the people who are now losing their income and have to pay higher prices for the food, the precious little food that they can access. So they should, the government should support people in terms of um, direct income transfers, and the government should support businesses in terms of what we call bridge financing, maybe bridge grants and bridge loans to help companies survive uh, before things normalize. Right, John? I, no, I totally agree that the government should step in and help people in, the, yeah. uh, in terms of providing loans, in terms of uh, um, uh, facilitating small businesses. But I'm, I'm, I'm a little skeptical about uh, giving checks directly to people for consumption purposes. I mean, this is the way uh, the policy has been adopted by many countries in the West, in Europe and the United States, for example. But I think in China, 
Um, Why not? I, I That'll drive away like you know those that. who. I'm always I'm always skeptical about giving money directly to to people for for consumption purposes because it doesn't go through a you know like a round of a uh, uh, pocketing down into the economy and, and, and having a multiplier effect. Mm. Uh, you know, if we want to help people, we should invest in projects um, and and that create jobs. You know, that's a classical um, Keynesian argument, actually. I mean, mm. he goes to the extreme uh, of saying that even the government should spend money digging, digging up ditches and, and then, you know, fill them up back again in order to create jobs. You know, we're not going to do that for sure, but there are plenty of things that the government can do to um, to, to invest in, in our environment, to, to, to invest in, in the cities we live in, to, to beautify the city, for example. And, and these things definitely create jobs. And I think we would rather help people by giving them jobs than just by giving them checks. This is a big difference. I think that mm. the big difference is that the, the, the social safety net in China uh, is probably better than, for example, in the United States. Uh, you know, the, even the poor people in China, they typically don't rent. I mean, they, they, they own their own housing. So there's not a, so much of a, a shelter problem. Uh, they won't be evicted, in my view. That's the first thing. Second thing is that I think that, you know, the family ties um, in China is probably, are probably stronger than Western countries. I mean, the people who are really in difficulties will probably get help from, from their parents, from their relatives, from their you know, brothers and sisters. So uh, I, I just don't worry about people you know, starving on the streets uh, if they don't have jobs. I mean, they can survive for maybe a couple of months at least, I would say. So the, the, the priority is not to give money directly to people, uh, but uh, to, to give jobs to people. Mm, that I agree. Then um, what about, you know, if we want to achieve or go as we've planned, what would be the most challenging part you know in the second quarter or even the rest of this year would you say is it like capital flight because i understand um you know some foreign funded firms or expats are planning to to leave china especially after the resurgence of covid well, that's, a, that's a yeah that's a very grave concern in my view i've already mm -hmm. Uh, uh, started to see uh, reports coming out of Shanghai that many expatriates are thinking about leaving for good, but mm. that's bad. Um, and and there are also uh, reports about uh, you know companies thinking twice about continuing investment in China. These things you know really scary to me. Uh, I think you know what's really important at this point is, is still. Again, I, I'll go back to the COVID policy here. Mm. Um, if this, this current policy, the dynamic, you know, zero policy, if it's not working or if it's um, has its uh, uh, pitfalls, and, and we have a you know a new understanding of this virus, I think we need to change. We need to adjust, right? So um, let's give it some more time to see whether this current policy is still working. The, the last thing I want to that I hope to see is that uh, um, is this idea of politicizing the COVID policy. I mean, this mm. is very much a scientific, a medical, a public health policy issue here. But not to sort of politicize this into, you know, this versus that. I think that's a that's a dangerous part of this. Um, if it's not working, let's change it. Let's adjust it. If it's working, let's stick with it. So, um, um, you know, if you look at the, um, the death toll here in Shanghai, it's actually not a very... 
But if number, okay, well, if it's the entirely like seventeen people die from this, and, and a lot of them are elderly people. Uh, let me finish. So um, the 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 idea is that uh, we need to get behind this. You know, the society needs to open. Uh, we don't have that much time for lockdown. You know, uh, at some point, you know, we have to make a decision. The current policy is working. Stick with it. It's not working. Let's adjust. So, um, you know, that that's what I would offer as a yeah, policy I, suggestion. I think the policy is already being um, gradually adjusted. And uh, the, the major concern there is those um, elderlies um, who haven't got vaccinated. So there is always this concern. But it's really difficult to balance the economic growth and the management well, that, that, of, of that COVID. The elderly people not getting vaccinated is not an excuse to me. I mean, it's a, I mean, five weeks have passed. How many more weeks do we need to vaccinate these elderly people? Right? No, I we, mean, we spend tons of resources. Yeah, that's a problem. We cannot force them to get vaccinated. So all I think the authorities can do is to select the safest solution they could currently find. No, central- I, I, I back to disagree. If, if the government can enforce the lockdown, they can encourage people to vaccinate. I mean, I no, you know, so no, that's I, against I the it's, it's, that, it's, that's it's against the law. Of, uh, I'm not saying we should force people. I mean, mm. we should uh, in fact incentivize people to. And I totally agree. You know, we can't force people to do things, but uh, what at very least I think we you know we can incentivize and encourage people uh, uh, to get vaccinated. Um, that that something. Definitely, I think the government can do. Um, it, 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 it's just a matter of uh, uh, investment of resources. Yeah, uh, I, I think the, so, go- the authorities um, will strongly try is that. or are trying to adapt to the changing environment. But um, when it comes to the economic growth, these things have to be dealt with um, simultaneously. It's true, but um, focusing on the economic um, policy, the economic policy, the central government now stresses, you know, the acceleration of the construction of a national unified market. So to to what extent has market fragmentation, if there is any, been affecting China's growth? In other words, is there still ample room for maneuver? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a competition policy issue. I mean, this is the the very foundation of a free market. Uh, mm. You know, it started out as the, uh, the United States Sherman Act. Uh, you know, one of the three antitrust legislations um, that facilitates and 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 and, and you know uh, facilitate interstate commerce basically. Uh, so in China, would the analogy would be the interprovince commerce. I mean, this is the very foundation for free market. So you know, another Chinese word we 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 call it unified market. Uh, it's the same idea. Mm. Uh, this should have happened many years ago, in my view. I mean, I think think what the state council has done at this point is to. Uh, uh, you know, introduce this initiative to further uh, pushing the, the fostering of a market in that direction. Um, and I think it's a great idea. Uh, absolutely, it is important because, uh, you know, inter-province commerce, in my view, is the very foundation of a, of a proper and stable market here in China, free market here in China. Mm. Um, for many years, there are those, uh, as you said, the protective measures, uh, adopted by local governments, by provincial governments, um, they should all be uh, ruled out, in my view. Uh, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, a contribution... Uh, it's been, it's been decades. 
passion is, is right. Do, do you expect it uh, to see any substantive change this time? Um, I, I hope. Um, I mean, some of these actually, you know, we have made great strides in moving towards that direction. Mm. Some of the policies or measures still in place, in my view, are quite subtle, um, and and also it, I think involves a change of mindset part of government officials. Uh, there are things that are being done on the part of government sort of in a customary manner for many years. And, and these things have to change. And it's a change of mindset in my view. So, um, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a good idea and, and I'm totally for it. I hope that the, you know, the, st the state council would enforce that with full teeth. Uh, I think that's, that's <laughs> implementation is more important. Yeah, so. totally. The chat lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Then going forward, what could be the biggest uncertainty affecting China's economic development? Is it, you know, the COVID or the Russian-Ukrainian conflict? This question to, to Rod. So the, the, the Russian-Ukrainian conflict has many political and economic uh, implications in the world. It helps accelerate deglobalization, and that is the main danger to the Chinese economy. It is the fact that um, countries may choose to enact protection policies to nationalize supply chains. And given that even though China is rebalancing to a service economy, um, the fact that it can, that trade might actually go down for a long period of time may reflect in um, investments getting out of China, production of multinational companies going down in the country, and in very simple terms, um, supply chains moving out of China. And that, of course, is a risk for the Chinese economy, and it is not a small risk. It is maybe already happening. We just cannot see it yet. Mm. Do you think it, it'll affect the, the Chinese eco economic growth more than, you know, the COVID pandemic? In the long run, much more. Um, if there is, if the decoupling happening, the globalization happens, that is a long-term effect that is much more significant to the Chinese economy than uh, the short-term effects of the COVID pandemic. Mm. Tom, what's your take there? Both are significant factors, but I think the the doomsday scenario we're having with the sanctions, that this inevitably looks like it could be permanent sanctions for the next few years, regardless of what happens in Russia, Ukraine. So with these type of sanctions, uh, you're going to have the severe food shortages, mm. energy shortages, and this is going to have a major impact on logistics. When I sort of think about the Chinese economy, I think what's actually the strongest point of the economy was its logistics, that they just somehow found a way to keep manufacturing going and how to send out their exports out. And all that was achieved through logistics. But here in this current type of economy and economic scenario where you're going to have shortages and uh, supply chain disruptions, it's going to be logistics that is going to be hurt the most. And this is where China, I believe, is going to be uh, really deeply impacted. And it's going to create, um, uh, you know, I, I just I just don't see good times right now. And I but I 
still think that overall China is going to do a little bit better than the West mm -hmm. simply because they have avoided the sanctions so far and that um, they, they, their, their logistics is still ongoing. But I think we're going to reach a point where everything is going to be so disrupted that uh, there, we may have a global depression. I mean, I'm not even thinking about recession anymore. Mm. I think that depression is the most likely scenario. And obviously, China will be impacted. But where can people go if everyone has, is undergoing a depression? Well, I think actually the emerging markets, any places that is supplying the raw materials. So maybe South America... Africa are actually going to do a little bit better because they are the main suppliers of the raw materials as well as Australia so that they, they are going to benefit from the high inflation times. Uh, but the consumers and the services sector are going to be the hardest hit. Mm. Yes, indeed. That's, uh, you know, quite worrisome. But, um, John, from your perspective, yes. I, I understand when making this growth target of 5.5%. The Chinese government actually took into account the disruptions that could happen during this COVID era, if you can call it an era. So what would be the biggest uncertainty affecting the economy? Well, um, I don't know whether it's true or not that the Chinese government uh, has already factored in the impact of uh, uh, the COVID uh, thing uh, of this kind of a scale when they proposed the target of 5.5% mm -hmm. early uh, later last year. I think, um, it, 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 you know, this is very unpredictable. Um, if you look at all the factors being hitting um, China's economy so far, um, without a doubt, the COVID is still the biggest shock, uh, the biggest shock. Um, so, um, and we don't even know when it's going to end. Um, so, I think if you ask me the uncertainty, it is still the biggest factor here. Um, in, in every possible way. I mean, the, the I agree manufacturing sector is probably less affected. You know, actually in, in, in Shanghai, it is also very much affected. For example, you know, that uh, Tesla factory, you know, has suspended production for a couple of days already. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's an impact. Uh, but again, you know, the China's economy is already close to 50% the service sector. Um, and, and service sector is the biggest hit uh, sectors uh, uh, at this point. Mm. So um, I, I think uh, the, this COVID thing is, uh, is a major, major impact. Uh, we need to get this behind us and, uh, and move forward. Um, again, I, I would argue that uh, the second quarter is critically hinge, hinges upon the, we, we get this thing behind. Mm. Uh, we need to um, learn from uh, the experiences in other countries uh, and, and move towards a, a, a normalcy, towards the normalcy. I think that's the that's the bottom line here. Uh, otherwise, uh, the 5.5 percent growth target um, is 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 not going to be within reach. Uh, so um, you're not too optimistic. That's 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 the way it has to go. Uh, and Rod, in in an article you wrote early in February, you said people overestimated China in the short term and underestimated China in the long run, and that. There was no limit for China to grow 5% annually for the next three decades. So my question is, were you too optimistic at that moment? Or given what have, have been in the past few weeks, 
do you still hold on to that opinion? So the, the, there are two different things. One is about potential, was about uh, realization, mm -hmm. right? Um, my, I have a, I have a, a, a saying that I like to, to repeat, which is um, people overestimate Chinese importance in the short run and underestimate the importance of China in the long run. In other words, people look at the numbers like 8% uh, growth, 5% growth, and like, wow, China is really, China is still an upper middle income country, right? China has immense potential. And the way that, that I like to look at it is the fact that today, the productivity, the average labor productivity in China is around 25 to 30% of that in the US. So if China were to grow 5% per year for the next 30 years, the average worker productivity in China would reach something like 70% of the average worker productivity in the US, which means that the potential is there, right? That is nothing that limits China's potential in terms of a natural barrier to Chinese growth. The question is, can China maintain this path without any sort of challenges and headwinds making it difficult? That's what economists call the middle income trap. I'm from Brazil. China is part of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Out of these five countries, three are completely stuck in the middle income trap. Brazil, Russia, and South Africa. Russia not only is doing that, but is doing much worse, right? And that's where I separate potential from realization. The Brazilian economy has a lot of potential that has not been realized in 30 years. China has the potential to grow 5% a year for the next 30 years. There is no barrier for that in terms of uh, labor, capital, and natural resources. The barriers are institutional in nature, the quality of the government, the, the potential crisis, and so on and so forth. So no, I don't, I don't revise my statements I like to qualify it by saying that um, things like not only COVID, but deglobalization, things like uh, the quality of the institutions in China, this is what is going to determine if China can grow 5% per year for the next 30 years or not. John, so actually at the this uh, Boao Forum for Asia, which is currently uh, underway in Hainan, as we speak, experts are suggesting the reinforcement of regional cooperation and further economic integration. What do you think actually can be done there? Well, I, I was actually just reading President Xi's speech. Uh, uh, exactly as you said, I think, um, you know, the Asian Pacific region uh, is, is probably in a very difficult time. I think um, overall, it's probably less affected by the war in Europe, mm. in Ukraine, um, and uh, uh, you know the the regional uh, trade has been uh, 
growing very rapidly, um, and especially uh, uh, in the context of the passage of uh, uh, RCIP. Uh, um, it, it, we're going to see more and more integrated uh, regional market here uh, in this part of the world. Um, and and also, we have to keep in mind that these economies are sort of emerging economies and, you know, there's going to be a lot of growth potential uh, among these economies and, you know, the, 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 with the expansion of class and 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 people uh, are looking for better jobs and better better life um so there's a still a lot of growth potential um it, you know it, it look at the uh, several ASEAN countries uh, like uh, Vietnam like uh, uh, Cambodia um, you know uh, these are really cool economies in my view so um, so I think uh, this is probably uh, one of the shining spots here uh, and I think um, with the, um, the, the the trade relationship with uh, with Europe with the United States uh, being subject to increasing political pressure the hope is is really the this market the the ASEAN market, uh, the the Asian uh, economic integration, regional integration. Uh, I think that's a one very important area of growth uh, as we move forward. Yeah, that's an area waiting for uh, further exploration. Tom, you can make a last few comments there. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's going to be a very big impact, and and currently high inflation times. The RCEP also includes Australia and New Zealand. Uh, Australia is very deep into the mining and uh, of the raw materials. New mm-hmm. Zealand is very big on on dairy and agriculture. So these are going to be very important in the years ahead as we head to high inflation times and we're going to deal with critical food issues and food security issues. Yep. So with RCEP, I see as a major, you know, a, a, a strong positive. Uh, and, and I think that for the regional side, we're going to see probably greater integration between China and Asian, uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, and also perhaps now we may see even, I've noticed that the uh, Middle East has been drawing closer to China as well with its trade ties and its energy issues. So uh, it looks like uh, China is going to get through these, these tough times and, and, and head in a stronger direction when it comes to regional trade with uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, Middle East, Arab states, and probably more of the emerging markets. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Thanks to Dr. John Gon, Professor of Economics, University of International Business and Economics, Rodrigo Zaidan, Associate Professor of Practice of Business and Finance, New York University, Shanghai, and author and commentator Thomas Paukin II for sharing your insights with us. Hope you enjoyed our chat. You can leave a review for us either on the topic or on the show. Please subscribe to the Chat Lounge for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tuyin. Thank you for being with us. Bye for now.